Tomei and Pauli, whose winsome intelligence shines through a wobbly New York accent, are the two star players here, and yet they are forced to orbit around all this vaguely eatable male rutting. That's from Richard Lawson of Vanity Fair, a new film from Judd Apatow. That's right, actually directing and not just producing. It's called The King of Staten Island, starring Pete Davidson. That's the major film we're reviewing this week. Also, season two of Rami, the show that I raved about when it came out last year. Is season two as good or does it suffer from the sophomore jinx? Plus, a classic that I'd never seen. That's right, I was embarrassed. 58 years ago, I finally sat down. Three hours and 40 minutes of Lawrence of Arabia. Props to Ben Mankiewicz and TCM, which aired it Saturday night, along with one of Joe's favorites, Bill Burr, the director of The Incredibles. He spoke about how much he loves Lawrence of Arabia. He cast Peter O'Toole in Ratatouille, playing Anton Ego. Uh, and so I was finally able to watch one of the great epics of all time. Also, a very special guest, Barry Sonnenfeld, who is as funny as it gets, a great director of Get Shorty, Men in Black, Adam's Family, RV. He has a book called Call Your Mother, Memoirs of a Neurotic Filmmaker. As Jerry Seinfeld writes in the cover, if I went to prison and saw that Barry Sonnenfeld was going to be my cellmate, I would think, oh, this will be a breeze. He and Seinfeld, by the way, neighbors did and tell you ride. So cannot wait to bury Sonnenfeld. Uh, it's a great, great book. As always, please do check us out on Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate, and review. I appreciate all the support we're getting right now. I hope everybody's staying safe during this uh, very difficult time, not only obviously COVID-19, but now these social protests which are going on everywhere. And of course, you look at art and what art can do in terms of uh, framing things and helping you illuminate the situation. My dear friend Tim Kirchin called me yesterday and said, what do you think should me and my wife and my daughter Kelly and, and uh, husband watch Just Mercy? And I said, well, listen, it's a well-intentioned film, but it's not exactly a few good men when it comes to courtroom dramas, but it's about injustice towards African-Americans. If that's the vibe you're going for, uh, you know, so be it. But in terms of what I would recommend, Spike Lee's got a new film called Defy Bloods coming out on Netflix this Friday. He was on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon last night. We're taping this on a Tuesday. I know it's been released on a Wednesday. He was on Monday night, and... They showed clips of Do the Right Thing. Uh, to me, whenever it talks about race in America, you're not going to do better than Do the Right Thing. It's one of the all-time great films about race in America, how a microcosm where a society is now. Things really haven't changed that much since 1989. And Spike showed a clip of Radio Rahim, who is a fictional character, a big African-American guy who gets in trouble with the police and then is restrained in a terrible chokehold and murdered. And he intercuts that with what's happened with George Floyd and other terrible, terrible incidents of violence against blacks. Uh, it's very, very powerful. So check out Spike on uh, Fallon on Monday night. I'm going to be reviewing Defy Bloods next week on Cinephile. But if you're looking at race and social protests, what should I watch? Watch Do the Right Thing. Watch Selma. David Oyelowo playing Martin Luther King. Ava DuVernay directed it, was nominated for Best Picture, should have been nominated for a whole lot more. Boycott is a great HBO film also about MLK. Watch Malcolm X. One of my favorite movies of all time, Denzel Washington, Spike Lee collaboration. If you want a documentary, James Baldwin, I'm Not Your Negro. Currently, Amazon Prime is showing that for free. So there's lots of options out there right now if you feel like, you know what, I'm, I'm socially aware. I'd like to be aware, cinematically speaking, there are some options for all of you. Let's kick it off right now with some reviews. The King of Staten Island. That's right, Pete Davidson starring in a semi-autobiographical film, if you know anything about Pete Davidson, you know he dates a lot of hot women like Ariana Grande, and he lost his dad to 9-11, and he's pretty funny in those Comedy Central roasts. I don't watch SNL, so that's the extent of my Pete Davidson knowledge. 
Unfortunately, though, this is the bad Judd Apatow. There's good Judd Apatow. There's bad Judd Apatow. The good Judd Apatow was right out of the gate. I think his best film might have been his first film, certainly in terms of a, a fiction film, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Hilarious, charming characters, sweet, good-natured, and an incredible cast. Knocked Up, still very good. That was a sophomore effort. After that, you know, you can see what you will, funny people. There's kind of some ups and downs along the way. I think Trainwreck was good. Certainly Amy Schumer announced her arrival, although she hasn't really capitalized on that burst of fame. I met Judd Apatow at the Oscars a couple years ago on the red carpet. I said to him, uh, you know, whatever, big fan, love 40 year old Virgin. He's up. Oh, thanks. Where are you from? I said, I work for ESPN. He goes, oh, did you like my 30 for 30? If you want to check out his nonfiction work, he did co-direct a 30 for 30, if you're a baseball fan, Doc and Daryl. He's from Long Island, of course, big Mets guy. It's a good documentary about Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry. You can also check that out. The best work Apatow's ever done, The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, a four-hour documentary calling towards the best work of my favorite comedian. It's a really great ode to Shandling and also what artistic impulses are all about. Having said all of that, in terms of like what I said, a narrative film, it's been a while since Apatow wowed us. It's been a while since you saw Catherine Heigl and Knocked Up. And unfortunately, King of Staten Island falls prey to the bad Judd Apatow. What does that mean? It means it's bloated. Two hours and 16 minutes when an hour 45 would suffice. What happened to comedies being 90 minutes or less? I don't need 216 of this. It means there's a lot of navel-gazing. It means there's a lot of unnecessary emoting. It means that he's trying to cast stars of the past and give them new life. And ultimately, it means this. Pete Davidson, as much as I respect the fact he's been an outspoken advocate in terms of mental health awareness, and like I said, those Comedy Centrals, he's pretty funny talking about the fact he lost his father to 9-11. He uses it for comedic gold. He's just not a very good actor. I can't watch this guy as the king of Statline for two hours and 16 minutes when as an actor, I don't think he's got the acting chops to hold the screen. I'm watching it on VOD because I got a link. If I was watching it on a big screen, I would say, listen, this guy's not a movie star. He's not Steve Carell. He's not Catherine Heigl. He's not Seth Rogen, etc. And as an actor, I just found him obnoxious and unlikable. That is, of course, partly of the story because he's a guy dealing with his father's passing. He's a slacker. He can't find his way in life, blah, blah, blah. The more interesting characters are the supporting actors. Marissa Tomei, so incredible in The Wrestler, an Academy Award winner for My Cousin Vinny. Here she plays his mother, put upon, dealing with his nonsense for a long time and dealing with, of course, a deceased husband. By the way, in the movie, it's not that he lost his dad to 9-11, but he lost his dad who was a firefighter. So there's a slight change there. The guy who's really good is Bill Burr, who's a really funny comedian. I remember my friend Hussein and I saw him in L.A. He was uh, unannounced, showed up. Guy's hilarious. And he shows up as a love interest for Marissa Tomei, and he's actually a really good actor who's got comedic chops and has got some drama as well. Steve Buscemi has a small role. He's excellent as well. He plays a guy who's a firefighter who knew Davidson's dad, tells some good stories about him. But ultimately, I can't recommend The King of Staten Island. I know we're dying for good movies these days, Joe. I got to give this one two Apple Leafs. There's not nearly enough laughs for a comedy, and the dramatic stuff is decent towards the end, but it's not enough to hold my attention and thoroughly recommend this film. Two Maple Leafs for me. Oh, boy. I was really curious about this film, and hearing you talk about it kind of solidifies it for me. I mean, the, the, the cast is great, and like you said, I mean, Bill Burr, when he was on Breaking Bad, showing off his acting chops there. There's some of the funniest comedians in the world in this movie. Um, just New York stand-ups like Liza Traeger, Pamela Adlon's in it. She's not a stand-up. But I agree with you. I wondered what this movie was going to be about. 
and how people would be receptive to it. On SNL, he I think he has his hit and miss moments. His first appearance ever on SNL might be the funniest four minutes of stand-up I have ever heard in my life, but it just doesn't sound like he's, he's there yet in his career. Do you think that he'll be able to bounce back with other movies, move into uh, the dramatic role? What do you think where he'll go from here? I don't think so. I don't think he's got the acting chops as one of those other SNL people that we all know have made that transition from the small screen to the big screen. You know, guys like Will Ferrell or Mike Myers and others. I mean, it's interesting looking at some of the reviews. David Ehrlich of IndieWire says the king of Staten Island lacks the lightning in a bottle magic that made Apatow's first movies such instant cultural touchstones. Steve Pond of The Rap, the king of Staten Island contests the patience of all but fervid Davidson devotees. Uh, you mentioned the cast. There's definitely some, some enjoyment there. Maude Apatow, Judd Apatow's daughter, also in the film as well. But no, I, I don't think Davidson's got the chops like the other people. And uh, I mean, ultimately, he just comes across like this slacker who smokes marijuana, hangs out with his friends. I don't know where the acting starts and where the real Pete Davidson lies. But to me, it just wasn't <laughs> stimulating enough. Oh, that's funny. All right. I'll still check it out probably just at more out of curiosity. But yeah, I'm just more curious to see if the Pete Davidson trend will, will launch further or fade away, you know? Yeah, we shall see. And like you said, there's just such a lack of content these days. Hopefully people will check it out just because they want to see a new movie. So The King of Statline will be available on VOD this Friday. The show that I really want to talk about, though, of course, is Rami. I raved about season one, gave it four Maple Leafs, instantly one of my favorite TV shows. And that's because, of course, it's got a personal connection to me. It's the first ever Muslim-American comedic show on U.S. television. And so when I see there's a show about Muslims living in Jersey, I say, hang on a second, this could be the Verks one day. In case you don't know the background, here's what it is. Rami Hassan is a first-generation Egyptian-American who is on a spiritual journey in this politically divided New Jersey neighborhood. Rami brings a new perspective to the screen as explores the challenges of what it's like being caught between a Muslim community that thinks life is a moral test and a millennial generation that thinks life has no consequences. And as I said, the first season was outstanding, and Rami became a star, won the Golden Globe Award for Best Actor Television Series, Musical, or Comedy this past January. His speech was very funny and endearing. As he said in his speech, I know you guys don't know who I am. You probably think, who's this editor that just won a Golden Globe? But he's very endearing, and now the press has been there, Entertainment Weekly, Variety, etc. And as he said, his show, which is about Muslims, which is about Egyptian-Americans, really cut a cord not only with his community, but others. He said he was reached out to by an evangelical in Alabama who said, by the way, I'm Rami. I watched your show and I related to it so much because I feel a lot of the same questions this character has, trying to find my place, trying to be motivated, a disenchanted millennial, and yet trying to find my sense of spirituality as well. He said he sat down with some rabbis in New York City and they talked about Judaism and Islam and the similarities and the differences. So with all of that background, the question then becomes, well, how's the sophomore act going to be? Is there going to be a sophomore slump? And I'm sorry to say at first, I was concerned. The first four episodes deal with Rami going on a spiritual journey. And we don't know what exactly what happened with him and his cousin in Egypt, but things didn't work out. So now he's bummed out and he's just watching a lot of porn. So he goes and visits the new sheikh, which is the imam at his mosque, played by the great Mahershala Ali, Academy Award winner, former guest here in Cinephile. And so he's very honest with the sheikh. He says, listen, you know, I'm watching too much pornography. And to be honest, 
I, I, I know I was watching porn because I didn't want to have premarital sex. I wanted to be a good person. That's why I was watching porn to get rid of these urges. And it's very honest in what he's saying. But those first four episodes, they don't have a whole lot of humor in them. Again, it's focusing on the spiritual journey. And for comedy, you need some laughs. Now, there are some cringe-inducing moments, which is kind of the Rami sweet spot of comedy. In particular, there's a guy who's disenchanted and disaffected. And Rami says, you know what? I'm going to bring this guy into the fold. I'm not trying to make him a Muslim. I'm just trying to help him out. So he brings him to the mosque. He says, I'll give him some work that he can do in the mosque. It helps. But of course, there's an anti-Islamic rally taking place outside of the mosque, and things blow up in a hurry. There is a great comedic moment, though, by the way, when he's talking about Muslims, and Rami's friend, Muhammad, goes, hey, by the way, it's a soft S. It's pronounced Muslim, just like pussy. And the guy goes, okay, pussy, Muslim, pussy, Muslim. And Mo goes, well, I don't want to repeat it like that all the time. That's the kind of humor, Rami, where I think the best way I could describe it, it, mix, it mixes the sacred and the profane. It is a very religious character, but at the same time, episode seven is about what? A bunch of guys going to a strip club. And you got the one guy who's religious, who's trying not to stare at women. You got the other guy who's having a blast and like literally making it rain like he's DJ Khaled. And then you got Rami who's stuck in the middle, who's saying, listen, I don't really want to be in a strip club, but these are my friends. And okay, this girl's kind of hot and here's where you go. And I think it's a very uh, realistic portrayal of what I'm sure a lot of young men in their 20s and 30s deal with. Having said that, after those first four episodes, which, like I said, are a little bit wayward, it really finds its touch. And here's what's unique about Rami. You know, you watch a lot of these shows, and normally the lead character is fascinating. The supporting characters are not fascinating. Joe and I love Succession because Brian Cox is brilliant, but every character is interesting. There's never an episode where I say, oh, man, it's about Cousin Greg, because everybody's good. Here's what's unusual about Rami. The best episodes are actually not about Rami. Episode five is about his sister, Dina, losing her hair. She is not religious. She thinks it's ridiculous that people pray. And yet she is thrown for loop of the fact clumps of hair are falling out of her head. So she starts wearing a scarf on her head. She starts wearing the hijab, not for religious reason, but because she's covering her head because the hair that's falling out. She's also terrified of the fact that she may not get into college. So she consults her uncle who has her meet with a woman who's going to reverse this hex upon her. Later on in a scene which is about as brazen as it gets, she's getting a ride in a tow truck driver by a Mexican guy who starts making insulting comments to her. He says, listen, you know you don't have to wear that rag on your head here in America. I don't know where you're from. And she says, where I'm from? I'm from New Jersey, okay? Like I'm an American. And he starts saying, listen, I know the way my Mexicans are. I got Mexican drug dealers, cartels. I'm not proud of that. You shouldn't be proud of your people either. Do you know that in your country, men cut out the clitoris of women? How disgusting is that? That whole episode I thought was so strong and so well-written and so honest. Episode six is about Rami's mom, who is a Lyft driver who gets a bad rating and thinks it was because she insulted a transgender woman. And so she has to go then and literally go to this bar and try to find this transgender woman and say, listen, I didn't mean to offend you. I just say things bluntly. I don't understand. You're a man, but you're dressed as a woman. When you were wearing makeup, I was just confused as to what was happening. Again, a very honest episode here in 2020 dealing with the topic of transgender. By the way, that episode, normally the show is apolitical. That is very heavily anti-Trump because the mother is trying to get her citizenship and she's doing it in some ways to thwart Trump and say, listen, my vote has to matter because of what he's done against Muslims, the Muslim ban. And in fact, they get a really nice moment of reconciliation. She says, listen, Trump doesn't like your people. You're transgender. He doesn't like my people because I'm Muslim. 
Episode 7, as I mentioned, they go to a strip club. It's also intercut with, there's a religious guy, one of their friends who goes to Mecca and he's praying. And at one scene, the guys are doing virtual reality of a religious pilgrimage. Think about this. The episode's about a strip club. And then later on, two of the characters are in their room using VR and imagining that they're in Saudi Arabia in Mecca in a religious pilgrimage. Episode 8 was my favorite of the bunch. It's about the father. And it's very touching about when he first had his son. He calls him Yachabibi in Arabic. And, and now he's unemployed. He's letting go of his son. He realizes his son, you know, they don't have the same relationship he thought they once did. He's looking after Rami's dog. He still dreams of playing soccer. It's a really beautiful father and son episode. And then there's episode nine, which by looking at critics' reviews is the one that really blew people away. Uncle Nassim, which is this character you feel like you've seen before, big beard, jewelry dealer, loud Arab. He's an anti-Semite. He's a misogynist pig. You've seen this guy a hundred times, whether or not in movies or TV. And this episode actually shows the depths behind him. Because even though he's this big workout guy, a man falls into a sauna and then blows him. And you go, okay, wasn't expecting this. Uncle Nassim's actually gay. Or is he gay? And is he just dealing with repressed sexuality and he's in the closet and he can't accept it because of his culture and because of his community? That episode showed some real guts. And then episode 10 gets down to the business of Rami actually getting married, this time to the Sheikh's daughter, Mahershala Ali's character. And what exactly happened with his cousin back in Egypt? It's a lot to chew on, but the point is this. If you want something fresh... If you want something different, if you want something that's original and gutsy and groundbreaking, then I highly recommend Rami, which is currently on Hulu. Rami Youssef has now come into his own. He's won a Golden Globe. The Emmy Award nominations are coming out in late July. I believe Rami will get nominated for Best Comedy Series. I think he's going to get nominated for Best Actor, and this is the only beginning for him. Again, I have a vested interest in a show like this because of my background, my community, but honestly, Mubarak to Rami, I think it's a real achievement, and I really think... You should all watch it. First season I gave Four Maple Leafs, I'll be honest, the first few episodes take a little while to get going, but I'm still giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. And how unusual is that, Joe? And that's a credit, by the way, to Rami Yusuf's writing. He writes almost every episode. Either he co-writes it or writes it entirely. He directs a couple episodes, much like Jason Bateman with Ozark. You know, it's a real passion project. The best episodes aren't actually about Rami. How interesting is that? That is really great. I watched the uh, the pilot episode over the weekend and, and loved it. And after I watched the pilot, I, I was reading this interview that he did with Slate.com where he was talking about, th- this is his quote, he says, it's my job to push the conversation. That's all it really is. It's not educational. It's not representational. It's more just like, what combo of this can I get out of it? It's not mathematical. There are things that I find funny. Does this make me laugh? And that's pretty much it. And I really like how it doesn't seem like from what you tell me, he's trying to force uh, any sort of conversation just for the sake of doing it, but just because it is his experience in this country at this time in this country and how he fits into all of this. So I like, it, it seems like a very genuine, authentic show. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. As he himself said, listen, I know we're the only Muslim show going, but I can't represent a billion people. I'm focusing, like you said, Joe, on my specific experience. I'm an Egyptian American who's from New Jersey. That's all I can do. It's different for Somalian Americans, as you know, the Muslim population in Minneapolis. It's different for my family's roots in Pakistan. It's different for people in California. There's, there's so many different groups of Muslims, different different backgrounds, et cetera. I'm just going to try to tell my story and tell it as well as I can. And as he said, I, you know, I can't just show Muslims as being good or just being bad. I mean, I'm trying to show them as authentic people, and that's what's going to make it the most interesting. If I'm just going to be dogmatic, well, then that's not entertainment. 
As Ben Travers of IndieWire writes, it's a smarter, better show for being so hard on Rami, in part because it knows him well enough to not let the whole story rest on one young millennial's shoulders. Exactly. They spread the wealth, which is smart. Adrian Horton of Guardian. Perhaps the most potent insight in the second season is the lead's amenable but pathological defiance of personal responsibility. They don't let him skate on this. He's well-meaning and winsome brew of good intentions and self-obsession. He is a self-absorbed guy, just like a lot of millennials are. He's not going to deny that. He's being honest about him. At the same time, he's a likable guy that you root for. And in Ku Kang of Hollywood Reporter, it's difficult to make a show about a protagonist who's as lazily acquiescent as Rami, especially when supporting characters are seldom given the vividness to shine on their own. I would disagree with the seldomness. As I just said, I, I pointed out episodes where each character gets their own episode. And yet, it's impossible not to be moved by season two's guiding observation. Once again, check out Rami on Hulu. I recommend it highly. One more before we get to our special guest, Barry Sonnenfeld. That's Lawrence of Arabia. That's right. When people ask me, come on, you're a film critic. What's a great one you've never seen before? I say, oh, you know what? I've never seen Lawrence of Arabia. I finally knocked it out. Three hours and 40 minutes. British Lieutenant T.E. Lawrence, played by Peter O'Toole, sent to Arabia to find Prince Faisal, played by Alec Guinness, and serve as a liaison between the Arabs and the British in their fight against the Turks. With the aid of native Sharif Ali, played by Omar Sharif, Lawrence rebels against the orders of his superior officer and strikes at a daring camel journey across the harsh desert to attack a well-guarded Turkish port. All right, first and foremost, is it long? Well, yeah, it's 3.40. Could I have cut a little bit? Sure. But let me tell you something. They don't make them like this anymore, right? When people say they don't make them like they used to, I have no idea how they pulled this off. 58 years ago, 1962, shooting in the desert. As Kenneth Turan of the LA Times writes, no special effects are front and center here. Simply the way a master creator of images pulls us into a dramatic story of great psychological complexity. The directing by David Lean is nothing short of incredible. Uh, the score is amazing. The cinematography. And the scenes that you've heard about, if you're a movie fan at all, the scene where he first sees Omar Sharif coming in the desert, it's shot to look like a mirage at first, and it's, it's breathtaking the way that David Lean pulls it off. O'Toole sees the mirage coming towards him, and sure enough, there's Omar Sharif on a camel coming towards him. They hold the shot, and it's so well done. Um, there's also the sequence at the end. You've seen it before, Peter O'Toole. No prisoners. What does that mean? Well, now that I've seen the movie, I know exactly why he's saying no prisoners. He's a complex performance. He's a lead actor who's ambiguous, uh, which is always kind of the best shades that you can find. Um, you know, when you look at the history of the film, Albert Finney was supposed to do it, either got fired or got tired of the fact he didn't want to be there riding a horse. And so instead, Peter O'Toole stepped in the role. David Lean saw him, cast him immediately. Um, Brad Bird, one of Joe's favorites, of course, he's the director of The Incredibles, and he loves Lawrence of Arabia. He's talking to Ben Mankiewicz on TCM about it, and he directed Peter O'Toole, in fact, uh, when they made that film Ratatouille. Peter O'Toole played Anton Ego, so Bird's a big fan. He mentioned on TCM the shot where Peter O'Toole has a lit match, blows it out, and it goes right to a shot of the desert. He explains exactly why that shot is so powerful. If motion pictures are about images that move you and stay with you, then Lawrence of Arabia certainly is outstanding in that regard. As I said, is it long? Yeah, I couldn't do it in one sitting. I did 2.50, I went to bed, I watched the next hour the next day. I would love to see it though on the big screen because photographer Fred A. Young, the way that he evokes the Arabian desert, I, I mean, it's, it's terrifying and moving. And even as one of the actors says to Peter O'Toole at one point, you're falling in love with the desert. He said, well, clearly you're not from around here. Arabs hate the desert. There's nothing but sand. It's awful. We want to see trees and greenery. And now having been to Saudi Arabia myself this past December, I did find a deeper resonance and appreciation for it. 
Uh, the cavalry charge is amazing at the end. Honestly, Omar Sharif, God, what a handsome guy, especially back in that era. Um, and Peter O'Toole, blue eyes as blue as the ocean. It's an amazing film, Lawrence of Arabia. I'm glad I finally saw it. If you're a movie lover and haven't seen it, get around to it. I know Joe's going to watch it too. Lawrence of Arabia, it's an all-timer. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. So I'm doing my usual Vancouver radio hit with my man Blake Price. We're talking movies. And I said, I can't wait for July 17th. He said, why? I said, because the last time I checked, that's when Christopher Nolan's Tenet is coming out. And sure enough, my producer Joe and I share a brain because he sent me this news story, which is timely, which is exactly what I'm thinking about. When can I go back to the movies again? Well, I think July 17th. Here's the update. Solstice Studios Unhinged will be the first new wide-release movie in those theaters that are open on July 1st. But Tenet, a production budget of $200 million, and Warner Brothers and Christopher Nolan optimistic the pick will stick to that date. It depends on the continued positive movement due to the decline of COVID-19. And one of the uh, people there who talked about this said, even with reduced auditorium capacities at 50%, which was my thought, hey, listen, the movie could open, but you're not going to get blockbuster business because you got to be six feet apart. We can still operate profitability with all the safety techniques we put in place. So, dude, I cannot wait to get back to the movies. I love Christopher Nolan's movies. Tenet starring John David Washington, hopefully July 17th. If it doesn't, I'm sure we'll find out. But there was a huge positive response from the second trailer that they dropped recently on Fortnite. So if you think people are fired up just to go watch some movies, particularly this one, I can't wait. Speaking of movies, California Governor Gavin Newsom issued guidelines that might see filming in the state resume as soon as June 12th. Wow. Handed down earlier by the state's Department of Public Health, it looks like studios could abide by regulations and restrictions established between labor and management. Production guilds and studios reportedly still hammering out what actual policies and precautions would be. No guarantee, but sooner rather than later. This is interesting, Joe. Either one you want to touch on. Chris Nolan movie, you got to see it in a big theater, right? You cannot watch this on VOD, whether it's Dunkirk or Inception or any number of his films. And as far as shooting again, I say, okay, that's one thing, but are people wearing masks? Are you know movie studios you know how big the set is the key grips all the camera people the makeup artists how do you stay six feet apart this is all very interesting to me right and i'm glad you know these conversations are at least happening because it, it seems like it's a sign that we're headed towards reopening and I, a lot of people are so cooped up i hope that the movie is released on july 17th i would love to see it in theaters and his his movies are always as you alluded to a huge spectacle so 
I'm I, I like a lot of people right now, just craving new content in any form possible. But if I can do it in a theater safely, I'll do it. Uh, and last note here again, with the whole topic of civil unrest right now and the social protests, this one's long overdue, isn't it? A&E and Paramount Network have pulled episodes of unscripted shows, Live PD and Cops from their schedule after the May 25th death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Scheduled episodes of Live PD, which by the way is A&E's most popular show, and Cops was slated to begin its 33rd season. Both shows send camera crews on ride-alongs with police and document arrests, pursuits, and other actions. Cops pioneered the format back in 1989 on a then-fledgling Fox, and Live PD follows police patrols in near real time, as its title implies. Uh, I haven't seen Cops in probably 30 years, Joe. I haven't seen Live PD. But is it safe to say, I'm sure one could imagine, these shows are glorifying what the cops do when they find the crooks. Yes? 100%. And I'm curious to see where the future of cops and if it'll air again and if it does, you know, this year. Just, um, but I had no idea Live PD was A&E's most popular show. So that, that's kind of interesting to me. It definitely is interesting. So we'll see what happens in terms of what the entertainment industry will do after the George Floyd protests, which clearly showed no sign of abating. Now it's time for a special guest. I'm telling you right now, he's one of the funniest guests we've ever had on Cinephile. Sit back, listen, and enjoy, and laugh along with this guy. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Barry Sonnenfeld's philosophy is regret the past, fear the present, dread the future. The best $29 I spent during this pandemic was buying his book, Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother, Memoirs of a Neurotic Filmmaker. It is so funny. Of course, he is the director who has done lots of great films over the years. So much great work now working in television as well. And of course, a great cinematographer on those early Coen Brothers films. Barry, I can't thank you enough for the time. I have so many questions while I was reading the book, so a couple of quick hitters right out of the gate. Why do you think John Peters, in his first meeting with you, told you that he's a premature ejaculator? <laughs> uh, you know what? John's a very wacky guy. He used to um, come to our house on weekends to talk about, uh, this is on Wild Wild West. He was a producer. He would come to our house on an occasional weekend wearing a Speedo and nothing else, and my uh, four-year-old daughter would say, why did John come visiting us in his panties? So John's an unusual guy. I don't know why he told me that. I guess to impress me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. He's trying to let you know. I mean, he's, he's, he doesn't waste anyone's time. Robert Frank, the photographer who directed the Rolling Stones doc, is the title Cocksucker Blues in honor of Mick Jagger's lips. I have no idea. You'll have to ask uh, Robert Frank, but uh, I assume so, uh, uh, because it was a documentary about one of the Stones tours that never got released. So uh, I would I would guess that might have been the name of their tour, actually. <laughs> now we dive into the funniest chapter of the entire book, an actress short, a cum shot behind, which had your wife, sweetie, convulsing in laughter and did so for me myself. 
Ron Jeremy, as you describe him, was the creepiest, hairiest person you'll ever meet. He had an incredibly long penis and a very short torso, which is how he could blow himself. The punch and smell, which you described, Barry, I mean, you did such a great job de-glamorizing the porn industry. Do you realize evangelicals are going to use your book? They're going to use that chapter to say, listen, this is why pornography is bad. <laughs> you know what? Uh, if they need to do that, uh, go with God, as they say. Um, it was the first chapter I ever wrote. I had no intention of uh, writing uh, this memoir. I just, for fun, a decade ago, more than a decade ago, wrote that chapter, which is based on the true story of when I got out of graduate film school. I bought a used 16-millimeter camera. This is obviously way before video. And my first job was shooting nine feature-length pornos in nine days. And uh, it ends with me uh, uh, not being able to get an erection for the next six months after I was done with those nine days of filming. I, I, I tell people that if pornos were released with smell of vision uh, it would do away with the entire industry. <laughs> The way you paint that picture, it's about as visceral as it gets, uh, really scatological humor. Your father, as you describe him late in your book, once again, Barry Sonnefeld, call your mother, buy the book, Memoirs of a Neurotic Filmmaker. Your father, good guy, terrible father. You discovered his condoms for his affairs. He thought that a woman could only conceive during her period, and he let CM the CM. Cousin Mike, the child molester, stay with you. His rationale, nothing short of frightening, saying, I thought he was just playing with your penis. I play with my penis and it feels good. Was it therapeutic emotionally to unload all of this on the page? You know what? The easy answer is to say that writing this book was very cathartic. But truthfully, you know, as you know, since you've read the book, the book is both funny, disgusting, hilarious, and sort of creepy and sad, but I felt all those things all my life. It's kind of why I've, I've been attracted to sort of directing and shooting dark, quirky, unusual movies like A Series of Unfortunate Events, which was a series for Netflix or Adam's Family or the Men in Black series. So I think I'd come to terms with everything already. I, I found writing the book really just lots of fun. I never had writer's block. I could sit down and write 30, 40 pages a day. In fact, the first draft of this book was 80% longer. But just like my movies, I like them very short. So I literally cut out uh, 60%, 70% of my first draft. And uh, so uh, I got plenty for a sequel. I was going to say, I want to read the full draft of the sequel, whatever you're going to plan, because I think you're right about the fact it's both horrifying and funny in the same sentence, kind of like, like a Todd Solon's film, Happiness or Welcome to the Dollhouse. You know, you wrote you wouldn't wish sex with your mom on Hitler. In pics, she looks uncannily like George Washington, Roger Ebert, and Vincent Gardenia's photo double. Uh, when shooting When Harry Met Sally, which you were the DP, Billy Crystal said, your mother's a lesbian. You know, how about the fact she said child sex abuse didn't have the same stigma back then as it does now? Right. Uh, you know, both my parents, uh, I'm kind of mean to them throughout the entire book. They weren't good parents. Uh, they shouldn't have had any children, although I seem to have gotten through everything just fine. But as I write in the book, uh, near the end of the book, I sort of, uh, I become 
I write a chapter about my father's 90th birthday party where I sort of uh, admit that my parents are, were very good people. They were just terrible parents, but they were truly terrible parents. But you know what? I, I suspect everyone to some extent has problems with their parents. Most people do. My wife didn't actually with her parents, uh, but... I, I have to say, my they were just terrible parents, but they they were good people. <laughs> I like the honesty. I think that's what makes the book so great. Barry Sonnenfeld, call your mother, check it out. Barry, this is unbelievable. Goodfellas is one of my favorite movies of all time. I knew Michael Ballhaus was the DP. I had no idea you shot the scenes of Henry Hill as a kid, and you endured mockery from two of my favorites all time, Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, you know... Um, Michael Ballhouse was a cinematographer. He was Scorsese's cinematographer for a while. And he had to leave. He had an outdate because he was going to uh, shoot Mike Nichols' uh, movie, Postcards from the Edge. And Michael and I shared, we were both EPs, and I shared the same crew with him, the same New York grip and electric and all that. So it made sense when Michael had to leave that they asked me to come in and shoot the last two weeks of Goodfellas. And there was only one last night where De Niro was, was in the movie. The rest of it was all young Henry Hill. And um, De Niro and Scorsese would sit right in front of the monitor watching you know, the take and talk about how they should change things for the next take and all that stuff. And um, uh, hopefully my wife will answer this phone. <laughs> Uh, and um, <laughs> it's my daughter, Chloe. She was FaceTiming me. But I never know if she's FaceTiming. I always think she's calling me. And then at some point in the conversation, she'll say, why do you have your phone to your ear? Why am I staring at your ear? And then I'll realize, oh, it's a FaceTime call. And then she says, just how old are you? Because we enjoy being mean to each other. But in any case... De Niro and Scorsese would would whisper to each other and then turn around because I was sitting one row behind them and they would turn around and look at me and then start laughing hysterically, which is something that's really frightening because I've never seen De Niro or Scorsese, you know, laugh in their lives practically. So De Niro made fun of me when he, when we were done shooting. And the next day I said to Scorsese, were you and Bobby like looking at me and laughing at me the whole evening? And Scorsese said, yeah, absolutely. We totally were. We were just making fun of you the whole time. We were just making fun of you because that's the way Scorsese talks. And I said, uh, can I ask why? And he literally said, well, look at you, which meant you seem so enthusiastic and young. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm very different than Ballhouse, who's a very German gentleman, like wears black every day. You know, I, on the other hand, I wear white shirts and ties and, and art, and I'm not distinguished or anything. So it was quite a different experience for them after working with the great Michael Ballhouse to work with young, enthusiastic Barry. Oh, it's so funny. It's so good. What memories do you have of shooting Goodfellas? Like you said, I know it was only a couple of weeks, but Scorsese obviously loves that roaming, restless camera, always so kinetic, particularly those camera moves in Goodfellas that I remember that first 20 minutes of the movie. Right. You know, my style is very different. And, uh, you know, Michael lights 
entire scenes, which allows you to, you know, do those great 360s and all the stuff he did, both in Goodfellas and also The Color of Money. And uh, my style is much more lighting each shot individually uh, and making each shot look good. If you light for 360, you have to light in a very sort of um, flat way that allows you to have lighting anywhere in the room, kind of. And in fact, uh, this is not in the book, but after that first night of shooting, and I went and watched what Michael Michael's last night so I could duplicate his work because we have very different styles. So I watched what he was doing so I could not use my style but use Michael's style. And the next morning after shooting all night, I was woken up by the great Selma Schumacher, who is Scorsese's editor for the last, you know, 40 years. And she said, what did you do? And I, she was screaming at me and I had just woken up and I said, what do you mean? And she said, the dailies look horrible. And I said, well, I don't think they can look horrible. I mean, all I did, she said, you're not trying to match what Michael did, are you? And I said, well, yeah, it's exactly what I'm trying to do. And she said, I don't like anything he shot. Don't, don't duplicate what he did. Make it look better. So that gave me license to not do what Michael would have done the last uh, two weeks that I shot. So the stuff of young Henry Hill looks a little different than the stuff that Michael shot with older Henry Hill. But Michael was a great cinematographer. It's just we had very different styles. We're talking with Barry Sonnenfeld. Call Your Mother is his book, Memoirs of an Erotic Filmmaker. Buy it. You shot the Coen Brothers' first few films, Barry. They're so inventive visually. Blood Simple, of course, Raising Arizona, and Miller's Crossing. I'm a big fan of gangs in New York. So when I, when I read the book, the part I laughed out loud is, is you and the Coen Brothers, who did not like gangs in New York, I mean, I like Dante Freddy's, you know, production design and the Chinatita Studios, Sandy Powell costumes, et cetera. But I found the reason you guys didn't like it hilarious. What was the reason that those you guys said? Well, Joe and Ethan didn't actually know the real reason. They just they just looked at me. We were all at the premiere at the Zigfield, and the movie got done. And Ethan said, "Why was that movie so bad?" <laughs> and I said, "Too much panning." But, which, by the way, it was Scorsese's thing to do with Ballhouse, you know, uh, if you look at... Although, I don't think Ballhouse shot it, right? Did no. Richardson shoot? Correct. Robert Richardson, yep. Right. Yeah. But it was still that sort of roaming, panning camera. And I, I personally, I'm a control freak in life, in directing, in cinematography, I like to tell the audience exactly where to look, and I like to dolly and push in and out or track. I find panning really lazy because it's sort of like saying, I don't know where the camera should be. Maybe it should be here, maybe there. Uh, it's just, just not my style, and I just don't like panning. And in fact, after I left the Coens to become a director, they started to work with a British guy who lit like Michael Bellhouse in that they would light entire sets instead of individual shots. And the Coens started to pan more. And I remember going to see uh, a serious man uh, at their premiere. And I, and this was years, decades after I was working with them. And I said, 
I think this is the best looking movie you've done since Miller's Crossing, which was the last movie I did with them. And Joe said, why this one? And I said, very little panning. <laughs> so panning and me are, it's always about panning. Uh, or, or, you know, <laughs> it's not the right way to review movies, but it's a specific way. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I will use that segue to say nobody panned a movie that I think is, it's my favorite film you directed, and that is Get Shorty. The stories in Barry Sonnefeld, Call Your Mother, are amazing. Danny DeVito is going to be the lead. Quentin Tarantino convinces John Travolta to do it. The egos of Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty behind the scenes. My favorite line of the entire movie, which I recite, by the way, all the time, is Gene Hackman, who, of course, is the schlock producer, when he's got his one big script, says, this is going to be my driving Miss Daisy. I want to know, was that an ad lib or was that the script? No, no, that was uh, Gene Hackman is now what you would call an ad libber. Uh, uh, No, that was written by Scott Frank. Uh, It was not in the book, uh, uh, the Elmore Leonard book, uh, but uh, Scott Frank did a fantastic job of taking Elmore Leonard's book and turning it into a movie script. In fact, up until Get Shorty, there had not been an Elmore, there had not been a movie written by, I'm sorry, until Get Shorty, there had not been a movie based on an Elmore Leonard novel that was any good or had made money until Get Shorty. And I think the problem was that people didn't understand that the way to play with Elmore Leonard's humor is to not acknowledge the comedy and just play the reality of it and let the reality be funny. And I think, I think that the directors uh, hadn't gotten Elmore's brilliant sense of humor. Scott Frank, the writer, did and did a magnificent job of converting his novel to uh, screenplay. It's a favorite movie that I directed. I, I love the experience and uh, love the cast. And just, I, it took me six years to get that movie made. So I was very proud that we finally got it made and that it was successful. Oh, I love the whole cast. I mean, obviously, Dennis Farina, is, uh, sweetie, your wife says, don't worry, you got Farina and Hackman. This movie's going to be hit. She was right. <laughs> no, I, I know. And I, I just fell in love with Farina and hired him to be in another movie I directed called Big Trouble, and he's equally brilliant in Big Trouble. And just talk about a guy who knows to avoid the comedy to be funny. I mean, Freener was as straight and flat and just delivered the lines without any comedic spin to it. And that's why he's so hilarious in both Big Trouble and uh, Get Shorty. He, he was a wonderful, wonderful man. Another wonderful guy you describe in the book is Danny DeVito. You describe him as the most self-confident person you know. And Throw Mama from the Train, one of my favorite movies as a kid. I, I thought the Hitchcock, Hitchcockian odes are so much fun. Strangers in a Train, You Do My Murder, I Do Yours, and Ramsey's Unbelievable. Right. Uh, you also shot Misery, which again, speaking of horror films, Kathy Bates, that monstrous tormenting of Jimmy Kahn. Um, tell me about those experiences, shooting Throw Mama from the Train and Misery. Well, uh, Danny and I, I just loved working with Danny. Just uh, the loveliest, most most generous guy. He was just fantastic. In fact, when I was shooting Throw Mama, which was, was in L.A., Sweetie was back in 
New York because she was in the middle of a divorce and she couldn't leave and she had children. So Danny and I spent all of our time together. Sweetie was able to come out one weekend and I told Danny I was going to go to the Ritz Carlton at the Laguna Niguel at Laguna Niguel with Sweetie for the weekend. And he said, ah, it's horrible. You're going to have a terrible time. You're not going to like it. You shouldn't go. But I went anyway, and we got there, and uh, the bellman took us to our room, Sweetie and me to our room, and five minutes later, there's a knock on the door, room service, and there's a bottle of uh, Tattinger Grand Dame Champagne and a huge bowl of caviar, and it says, you know, welcome to the Ritz-Carlton. But it didn't say that it was from Danny. It just said, welcome to the Ritz-Carlton. I said to Sweetie, Danny's nuts. This place is fantastic. They give you caviar, expensive champagne. Then, of course, on Monday, I found out it was Danny sending me that because Rhea, his wife at the time, had told Danny that he shouldn't have told me I would have a bad time. So it was his way of making up for it. But Danny and I got along great. And when I read Get Shorty, I said to Sweetie, read the book and tell me who the lead is. And she read the book and said, well, it's about self-confidence. It's Danny. Because as as I said, Danny is the most self-confident person I know uh, for no apparent reason. Uh, so um, Danny, Danny was just a, a great great to work with. I'll tell you one more Danny story. Uh, when we finally got the green light to make uh, Get Shorty at MGM, we had this one final meeting. We worked out the budget, which is another funny story in the book. And then Danny and I were both going to the men's room. We opened the door and there are two urinals straight ahead, the short one and then the taller urinal. And I am facing the shorter urinal and Danny's next to me facing the tall one as we are walking towards the urinal. And I don't know what to do. Do I cross in front of Danny and go to the taller urinal or do I keep walking towards the short one? Cause Danny does, he is short, but he doesn't play short. You know, he does, he doesn't Kevin Hart his height. So I just kept walking towards the boys urinal and uh, I got within six inches and Danny turns to me and says, what are you, a fucking moron? And I go, okay, I get it. And I, we switch places. But Danny was the best. And who was the other person you were asking about? Well, I was asked about shooting Misery with Kathy Bates, Jimmy Kahn, Rob Reiner movie. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, Rob and I had become good friends because I was his cinematographer on When Harry Met Sally. Sweetie and I introduced him to his wife, Michelle. They're, they got married a month after we did. And we just both celebrated our 30th wedding anniversaries. So when Rob asked me to shoot Misery, he was talking about Bette Midler to play the Kathy Bates role. And I said, well, you could do that, but you should really hire Kathy Bates, who I had seen on a, in a Broadway mu- uh, a production called Night Mother. And uh, I thought Kathy was fantastic, and I knew her because she was friends with the Coens. So Kathy met Rob, Rob hired her, and Kathy and I loved working together. Every day on the set, we would curse each other out when we saw each other every morning. Uh, she thanked me when she won the Golden Globe, and 
for uh, convincing Rob to uh, hire her. And uh, she, I just loved the experience of, of that movie. Loved working with Rob. It was hard working with Jimmy Khan because he's so energetic. He's one of those guys that when you sit with him, his leg is always bouncing up and down. He's just got like way too much energy. And for that guy to have to lay in bed for 84 pages of a script, was a nightmare for both of us, I think. I can only imagine. A couple more, and I'll let you go. Barry Sonnenfeld, call your mother. I love Michael J. Fox. I had to remind myself, you directed For Love or Money, which I know didn't do well, you know, critically, yeah. commercially. But but I just love Michael J. Fox. What was that experience like? This was after you directed Adam's Family. Right. Uh, so after I directed Adam's Family, I, I was asked to do uh, for love or money, and I thought it was uh, slightly like Breakfast at Tiffany's, you know, or um, no, no, watch the one with uh, Jack Lemon and uh, Shirley MacLaine. Oh, the apartment. The apartment. I thought it was like the apartment a little bit, uh, and uh, I thought it would do better. I'm not sure why it didn't. Michael had just come off of two movies that hadn't done well. That might have been part of it. It might just not have been as good a movie as I everyone wanted, but. Uh, he was a dream to work with. He was really smart. Uh, I remember every day he had the same thing for lunch. He would send his assistant out to the Chinese restaurant and get steamed chicken with water, water chestnuts and snow peas and just put some mustard on it, which was a very dietetic, but yet still Chinese food thing to do, which seemed kind of brilliant because my wife and I play a game, which is if you were on a desert island and you could only eat one cuisine the rest of your life for every meal, what it would be, most people automatically go to Italian, but I'm a Chinese food guy, must be because of, uh, I'm Jewish. Uh, so uh, I love that Michael found a way to eat Chinese food, yet have it be dietetic, and for a while that was my thing. But I realized I missed the spicy sauces. Yeah. That's great. Everybody, go by Barry Sonnefeld. Call your mother. Here's some other stories we didn't get into, but this is why you should read the book. Bob Dylan gave you the finger. You were in a class with Spike Lee at NYU. There was a 35-year-old gay Scientologist who you told Dianetics was poorly written. Uh, tough time directing Robin Williams in an RV who was always on. And Cheryl Hines says you're more neurotic than Larry David. I have to close with this last compliment. I listened to you uh, with my friend Jason Horowitz of MTV. It was a great podcast. And you also taught me something about comedy. You were talking about Men in Black and Tommy Lee Jones has to react and not buy the comedy. I'm watching this comedy Good Boys, which came out last year. Not sure if you saw it. There's one scene where the three kids are in trouble and the guy gets mad at him and he, he looks at the one kid and goes, you can suck my dick. He tells the second guy, you can suck my dick. And then the third kid says, what am I supposed to do? Just sit here? And it cuts to a shot of another guy who gives this quizzical look like, what'd you just say? And it's exactly what you told Jason Horowitz, which is that comedy is not in the line, it's in the reaction. And now when I'm watching watching all these comedies going, right. it's a reaction, that's the key shot. It's always been that way. If you look at uh, Preston Sturgis comedies or um, uh, uh, Howard Hawks comedies like His Girl Friday or, you know, uh, uh, any, any of those uh, bringing up baby, it's always a reaction shot that gets a laugh. I learned that personally uh, as a cinematographer on When Harry Met Sally, you know, we shot the famous Katz's deli scene where Meg Ryan is uh, faking an orgasm. And when you watch that 
movie with an audience, the decibel level, let's say, is at 800, and they're laughing and laughing at Meg, you know, faking the orgasm, and then you cut to Billy Crystal doing nothing, just staring at her, and the decibel level goes from 800 to 1100. And the reason is, is the reaction shot is the audience's point of view. So the audience gets to say, yes, exactly, it is funny. And that's what I had to convince Tommy Lee Jones, who had never been in a comedy before and tried to be funny. And I kept saying, no, the straight man is always funnier than the comedian. George Burns is funnier than Gracie Allen. You, you look at any comedy duo, you want one straight man and one comedy guy. And that's the great thing about the dynamics of Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones in Men in Black is that once I got Tommy to trust me, and by the way, that wasn't until he saw the finished movie, but I just wouldn't let him be funny. And that's why he's so funny. And the funny thing is, the problem with Tommy is all of our guns were space guns, right? You know, they're the Series 4 deatomizer and the little cricket. So they didn't have squibs. They didn't make any noise. They were just, you know, props that weren't real guns that didn't shoot blank. So Tommy, growing up around guns, would make the gun sound. And I would have to do take after take where I say, Tommy, don't go pew or because he would literally make the sound of a gun shooting. And Tommy would, I'd go, cut, let's go again. And Tommy would go, what? What's wrong? i go, Tommy, you made the sound of the gun. And he would turn to Will, and Will would shake his head and go, yeah, Tommy, you did. So I probably did, over the course of the 20 weeks of shooting, 300 additional takes. Because even though I got Tommy not to be funny, I never was able to get him not to make the sound of guns going off. <laughs> Absolutely priceless. Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother, Memoirs of a Nautic Filmmaker. I also love the fact you're a huge sports fan. The Miracle Mets, you're at the Willis-Reed game. I hope we get sports back soon. I hope everyone yep. reads your book. Uh, Barry, great, great stuff. I can't thank you enough. Well, what a pleasure. Thanks. Uh, great questions, and thanks for reading the book. I'm very proud of it. to tell you about these miniature gun models called goat guns. My guy loves building and collecting them. I was most surprised by the complexity of these models. They're really high quality. His dad and friends always ask about it, and if you ask me, these get a little too much attention around here. Shop for yours at GoatGuns.com.